Eileen Delahanty Perks, who, who, who uh, well, it was, for, it was sort of uh, serendipitous how Eileen actually got here. Patrick Brennan, who many of you know, was uh, walking on Capitol Hill and somehow they met. And, uh, and then he told me about this person who had written this book and then I got the book and, and Brendan said, yeah, let's, let's invite Eileen. And, and, and somehow we sold her uh, on this thing. Uh, her, what you're going to hear, well, I'd, it would be redundant to tell you what you're going to hear about, so I'm not going to tell you what you're going to hear about. Uh, just please welcome Eileen and, uh, I'll, and, and she'll be uh, presenting now. Thank you. Thank you very much to the Smoke Farm for the uh, invitation to come down out of the mountains of southeastern British Columbia, where I live, uh, to talk to you about uh, the Great Columbia River, uh, both its history, uh, its current plight, and the opportunities we have to shift the paradigm and heal this river. Um, I was woken up by the river in the middle of the night about 15 years ago, and um, I've been writing about and thinking about it ever since. I published this book, The River Captured, which is the way that uh, Patrick found out about my work by reading it. And it's a journey across the Columbia, the Upper Columbia Basin, and it has taken me on other journeys to places like the Smoke Farm, which I am absolutely delighted by. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I swam in the river this morning to wake myself up, and uh, I've been treated very, very kindly by everyone here, so I thank you for uh, the hospitality. So, um, I just wanna bring your awareness and consciousness to this great watershed, the Columbia River watershed. Uh, it is an international watershed uh, as a result of a boundary that was put in place in 1849. That boundary is between the U.S. and Canada, and you can see it there on the left part of this image, the Washington, British Columbia, Alberta. You can see the right-hand side of this international watershed formed by the Great Rocky Mountain Continental Divide. Uh, and it flows from the west slope of the Rockies through the mountains where I live, all the way down to the ocean. You can see the two different sized blue outflow markings. And these represent both the summer uh, plume or the summer outflow and the winter outflow, the winter outflow being a little slower. And this is a very beautiful visual way to describe the snowmelt qualities of the Columbia. The area where I live north of the boundary is the womb of this river. It produces a tremendous amount of snow and that snow enters the system in the spring in a snow-charged spring snowmelt uh, river system. Now what's interesting to me about this map and why I like to use it is that I worked with it for a while before I realized that it takes the shape of a human lung, at least in my understanding of it. And all of the tributary streams that feed into the Columbia, which you see marked here in black, are, are like the blood vessels in the human lung that are empowered by the oxygen that we breathe. And I'm going to talk more about what the oxygen is in this system. Uh, in a little while, but I want you to keep in mind this lung motif and the fact that the heart is actually what powers the lung to do its breathing. 
Uh, and this is very important to us as we move into another paradigm of the Columbia River watershed. And you can see yourselves here on this map. Um, you're in that little uh, kind of crescent up there um, just below the Washington International Boundary with British Columbia. And you have the Coast Mountains that are separating you from being a part of the Columbia River watershed. But just over those mountains, something remarkable happens. So this is a map that represents the Columbia River region today as it is manifested through its many, many, over 400 hydroelectric systems that operate and small dams that operate to facilitate irrigation. It's one of the most heavily and intensively hydroelectric developed river systems in the world and certainly in North America. It's got a very steep trajectory from those Rocky Mountains down to the sea and all the tributary streams are also draining mountain systems and our current 20th, late 19th, 20th century culture took full advantage of that natural hydrology and built many, many, many projects. There are 15 major megaproject dams on the main stem of the Columbia alone. You can see around the Columbia these other great um, river drainage systems, the Fraser, the Saskatchewan, the Missouri, the Colorado. Um, it gives you a, an impression of this is one of many great western river system drainage patterns. This is another map of the Columbia that's used by the hydroelectric industry. You can see at the top right-hand corner, this is the top of the Columbia's hydrological system. Uh, Mica Dam, which is located in the Canadian mountains in the far north, and the Aero Storage, and then you can see the Roosevelt Storage behind Grand Coulee, and you can see the stair-stepping. And unlike a carpentry-designed stair-step, you can see the kind of irregularity of the size of the steps, and that, that demonstrates very well the kind of trajectory of the water storage system and it demonstrates a very technical view of what is a living and breathing river system. And this right here is the paradigm we need to unpack. So how did we get that paradigm? Well, we got it because of the 1948 flood. Uh, there was a great water event, we call them big water years, when there was extra snow melt and rain at the right times. And you might have heard about, and if you haven't heard yet, you will hear about the Vanport flood. It was a catastrophic flood that destroyed a community, took lives, and stimulated the Columbia River engineers to say, we've got to do something about this river and its misbehavior. Unfortunately, the way we view the Vanport flood is historically incorrect, and I want to just correct the mythology around it. Uh, the reason people died was because of a botched evacuation order, coupled with a railroad dike that was inadequate to protect people living in the floodplain from the raging river, coupled with the fact that the people who lived in the floodplain were on inexpensive floodplain land that had been purchased by Kaiser Aluminum and they were workers at Kaiser, many of them were African American, and they were living in very cheap housing on very cheap land. Uh, 
So when you hear the Columbia and our plans for the Columbia and Portland's concern about flooding come up, you're going to hear people talk about Vanport. And I want you to remember that there's more than one story, as my book details. And this is an example of our culture's tendency to demonize natural systems for doing what they do best. This is Bonner's Ferry, Idaho in 1948, and this was another impetus, uh, and that is the agricultural flooding that took place. Not only was Portland threatened in an urban center, but also the agriculture in the upper Columbia was threatened. So we had a situation where people had come in and they had started industry and they had started farming and they didn't like it when the Columbia flooded. So that led to the signing of the Columbia River Treaty in 1961, and then a final ratification of the treaty in 1964. Now, this treaty has just come up for renegotiation, and it is actively being renegotiated right now, so you're gonna hear more about this in the news uh, as we continue. But this is a, a classic view of how things were done in the 1960s. We have on the right sitting uh, the president at the time. Anybody wanna? Eisenhower, and on the left, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, anybody want to? John Diefenbaker. And it was very much men in suits signing documents who lived a long way from the region. So the basic idea behind the Columbia River Treaty, build three storage reservoirs in Canada, control urban and agricultural flooding, and increase hydropower efficiency in the United States. Which brings us to the area that's my territory as a writer, researcher, and human being. I live in the upper Columbia region where all the storage reservoirs were constructed. And you can see them marked here in red. Micah, Duncan, and Keenly Side. On a map, no big deal. In reality, another story altogether. So where I live, steep and mountainous, tons and tons of water, like I said, it's just an amazing, uh, amazing liquid place. It's also ge geographically ideally suited for hydroelectric development because the valleys are very narrow, there is a lot of water, and because the valleys are very narrow, the dams don't have to be as wide. This is a schematic for the largest of the three storage reservoirs called Mica Dam. And to me, it represents more than any other image I have, the mixture of optimism and hubris that led to the wholesale destruction of the river valleys where the dams were constructed north of the border. It looks so simple in this drawing. On the ground, it wasn't simple at all. The people who lived in the valleys that were flooded out by the dams were not consulted about the plans for these major dams. So in a very ironic set of circumstance, a permanent flood created by the dam systems was going to flood out people who had to leave in order to preserve the lifestyle of others who didn't live in the region. So this is a very complicated and painful part of Canada's history. It's an embarrassing part of Canada's history, and you will not heard it talked about openly uh, because Canada doesn't want to admit that it forced people to leave their homes, that it inadequately compensated them, and that it did not properly consult as one would expect in a democratic society. 
There are many books that account for this forced removal written by the people who experienced it, and they're not easy reads. Uh, my book, A River Captured, helps to um, distill the, the important message there around, around land and people who are attached to land, just like here at the smoke farm. So because the US promised Canada bonus payments as rapidly as they could produce these storage reservoirs, the US was going to get them to go faster with construction and therefore they would earn bonus points, bonus dollars. And as a result, the construction of these reservoirs was on high speed, which increased the trauma for the local residents and for the non-human inhabitants. There was no archaeological preservation whatsoever. This uh, collection of pounders alone was picked up from the reservoir floor after the flooding had occurred over the next 10 years. This is uh, uh, the beginning stages of the award-winning mega-project, Duncan Dam. And you can see the industry and the incredible vision that was involved in creating this dam project. This is the valley that the dam was going to flood, and through it twines the Duncan River, and you can maybe see it close to the base of the mountains there. You can also see these Canadian mountains that hold so much snow for the entire system of the Columbia. This is that same valley today. And all of that, which was considered to be a Canadian Everglades, is now underwater. So in this, in this very intense decade, many river valleys were transformed, relatively speaking, overnight into storage reservoirs of massive proportion. On the left is the Mica Dam, the largest one in the system at the top of the system. There's actually someone here who's been to Mica, which is a rare thing for somebody. Who was it I was talking to who's been to Mica? There you go, you get the prize. And on the right is the Kukanusa Reservoir behind uh, Libby Dam. So just to summarize, you can see the three treaty dams and the one that was an option under the treaty, Libby Dam, just below the international boundary in western Montana. And all of these dams have created an enormous set of ecological uh, circumstances that are still in recovery in our region. So I was very um, affected by a book I read uh, recently, Andreas Weber, who is a molecular biologist, wrote a book called The Biology of Wonder. I highly, highly recommend. It's a shifting paradigm book. And he said in that book, the goal of an ethics, which is truly beneficial for life, cannot be control, but must be healing. So in a natural system, snow is the reservoir. We make a lot of it in Canada. Those of you who've been up there and gone skiing, you know all about it. We make huge piles of it. And in the climate change, climate modeling that they are putting forward, Canada's snow accumulations are going to remain more or less similar at the high elevations, where the Cascades and some of the other mountain systems south of the international boundary are going to be and have already been less and less snowy. And this has implications both for the ecosystem that we need to recover and for the international negotiations that are underway right now. This is a very rare circumstances where, circumstance where the tail that wags the dog, Canada, US being dog, Canada being tail, is kind of becoming a tail of some strength here because it's the upstream country 
And it holds a lot of cards, and one of them is this white stuff. So to take you further to the edge of my thoughts, I have spent many years thinking about this subject and what lies at the heart of my interest in either dam removal or partial restoration of free-running river systems is a philosophical belief that in this era where we move from patriarchal control to matriarchal embrasure, we are required to loosen the faucet on these hydroelectric systems if we're going to get them to match our cultural evolution as people. And I began to see that the dams were a form of control of energy, not just water, a control of energy, energy that flows freely. So this is m about more than just water and cement. Uncontrolled river systems, as my diagram demonstrates, are less ordered, more turbulent, and challenging. That would be a good way to describe what we're going through right now in our culture. Controlled river systems are ordered, predictable, smoothed over, and navigable. So let's shift now quickly in the few minutes I have remaining to talk about the lifeblood of the system. And that was the 16 to 30 million salmon that once swam from the Pacific up into all those tributary streams in the Columbia Basin. Here's a map of the tributary streams that provided salmon passage. You can see the beginning of it there at Astoria. And this is that same watershed map with the black and the gray all being salmon streams. The dotted lines at some of those higher elevation streams were areas that were naturally impeded. Salmon couldn't get to because of the natural system and its geography. But you can see how much oxygen could get through into that lung system. This is Swanetre, also known as Kettle Falls. Swanetre is a Salish word that means roaring water, water that makes a noise, sounding water. This is at Kettle Falls, Washington, north of Spokane. And there we had, in this waterfall system, a 9,000-year-old indigenous fishery, at least as far back as we've counted. Dozens of First Nations and tribes depended on the salmon that came up the, the Columbia River, and they managed the fishery for thousands of years. You can see them there on the right, another waterfall fishery known as Salilo Falls. On the left, at Kettle Falls, an indigenous, an indigenous fisherman in the early 20th century holding a typically sized 100-pound or so Chinook salmon. So this fishery was very, very important to the indigenous people, even as the declines began to be felt in the first part of the 20th century because of the operation of fish canneries and fish wheels that were constructed by us, the settlers. These fish wheels scooped up large quantities of fish, put them in cans, and put them for sale on the market. Those fish didn't get up to spawn. They didn't continue to perpetuate the life cycle. In 1942, the death knell was sounded for fish making it into the upper watershed, and that was the construction of the Grand Coulee Dam, or the completion of it. And you'll see here on this really fascinating archival thing that I found in a junk shop in the central desert of Washington, 
Grand Coulee was considered to be the eighth wonder of the world. Truly was in 1942. But that was a different value system and a different time. So today you can see in that upper Columbia region where I live a very large orange splotch and that represents the watershed that is not available to salmon. It's the upper watershed where water is cooler, where survival is more assured, where there are many spawning habitat streams. The same with the snake. You may be familiar with some efforts to remove dams on the snake. If you are beating a drum that way, keep beating it. Uh, very important to remove those Snake River dams. Very important to create fish passage around Grand Coulee. So 50 years after the signing of the Columbia River Treaty, the tribes have taken the lead on pushing salmon restoration into the treaty discussions. There are now people sitting at the table talking about this in their government-appointed negotiating table. The tribes have been excluded. They are not present. They are not allowed to be there as sovereigns. That's caused a lot of problems on both sides of the border for those of us involved in this issue who believe they should be at the table as sovereigns. They're not there, but the idea they carry is there. And that idea is to restore salmon to the Upper Columbia. This image is one of a carved, a tribal carved dugout cedar canoe. Uh, all the tribes that historically attended the Kettle Falls fishery, each one carved a canoe. And in 2016, they all met at the Kettle Falls fishery, which is now under about 50 feet of water. And it was the first time they had been all together at the fishery since before the construction of Grand Coulee. To see these people lift a canoe over a thousand pounds heavy as if it was a matchstick told me that we can do anything when we work together. So the tribes are thinking big but they're starting small. Kind of the opposite in some ways of <laughs> a lot of our cultural decisions where we think small and act big. <laughs> and the tribes are using now what they've always used which they call applied science. I call it the art of applied science. When science and art can work together, that's when things really happen. And I think you can see that here at the smoke farm. The main principle behind salmon restoration, there's fish passage, of course, around these mega dams. But the main principle to help our salmon restore health and well-being is not to slaughter seals. It's not to get rid of the predators who are eating all the salmon at the mouth of the Columbia. It's to get the water moving. The problem with getting the water moving, anybody got any ideas why we haven't done that? It's the almighty dollar. The water is worth more if it's held back and controlled than if it moves. When it moves, it does good things in a river system. I speak to a lot of children in schools, and this was a, a bulletin board that they created after they heard one of my stories. And I love this. It's a sockeye who says, somebody cleaned all the gravel. <laughs> somebody did. It was the river. So we need to get that water moving and turn the reservoirs back into rivers. This is a northern pike. It's a lake species. It's a still water species. It's not a natural. Um, indigenous species of the Columbia and it has a beautiful rainbow in its mouth. 
The tribes are well aware of the Northern Pike introduction in the 1950s. They're well aware that the Northern Pike's predatory nature is one of the salmon's biggest problems. And so they've taken small but important action. They've sponsored a bounty program. And they're making huge progress with that bounty program. They pay people to bring pike out of the water. And people love it, and everybody wins. This is a classic example of the tribal mind at work on salmon restoration. So I just like to put this slide up. It's a working list. It's a working list. But this is a list of every tribal people in their contemporary and in their indigenous self-taught ancestral terminology, sometimes both, sometimes either or, who lived along the Columbia River system from the mouth at Astoria right up to the headwaters. If you see one missing, see me after, please. And I show this slide because I really do believe that salmon reintroduction and salmon health is best turned over to the indigenous applied scientists. Uh, we need to get NOAA and some of these other agencies out of the picture. I can't believe I'm saying this, but <laughs> uh, really the tribal people need to take the lead uh, in all ways in helping us get out of this pickle that we're in. And I believe that salmon restoration on the Columbia system is extremely important for restoration of the entire Pacific Northwest fishery. Finally, finally, what are some of the ways that you all can support Columbia salmon reintroduction? I recognize that you don't live in the Columbia River watershed, but there are small things that you can do that will make a big difference. One of them is to think like a fish. I'll just leave it at that. Another one is to support or use renewable power anytime you can. And the reason why this is important is because the Columbia River system creates hydroelectricity that has the value of that, of that hydroelectricity has dropped like a stone in the last five to 10 years. The reason why is because renewables are coming on stream. The people who are part of the old paradigm of hydroelectric development on the Columbia are really nervous because the profit center, the cash register of the Columbia River, those days are ebbing. The more renewable energy we use in the Pacific Northwest and hydropower is not renewable it comes at too large of a cost. The more renewable we can use, the lower the price of electricity goes. The lower the price of electricity goes, the less value the water has being held back. Are you following me? We also need to replace or eliminate urban floodplain development. I listened to the Portland uh, town hall meeting on the Columbia River the other night on the phone. And there were some very emotional, very frightened people that if Canada did not continue to provide flood control storage in the upper watershed, there might be some serious consequences for Portland's development. No one was talking about the fact that Portland has developed widely on the floodplain with no thought to the natural river system's needs or desires. It's now about how do we keep the river from acting like a river. So, Another thing we can do is to support dryland farming in the Mid-Columbia Basin. Any of you who've driven on Highway 90 through to Spokane have driven right across the Mid-Columbia Basin through Moses Lake and areas like that. 
Some of those fields that use Columbia River water to irrigate receive only 30% of the water by the time it reaches the plants. It's lost through evaporation. Have you noticed how hot it can be through there? We should not be growing potatoes in the mid-Columbia Basin. We should be growing dryland crops, if anything. So the pressure of irrigators on the water system is going to meet the needs. It's going to face off against the needs of the salmon. Finally, you can email your support for salmon to Columbia River Treaty at state.gov. They read, they say, every email. If everyone in this room, or even half the people in this room, wrote an email where they said, please bring the salmon back on the Columbia, that's all. It will make a difference. Thank you. It's a, a fairly large download for those of you who aren't very familiar with the Columbia Basin. Um, so I'm happy to take questions. I apologize for the rapid pace there, but I wanted to make sure there was time for some commentary. Yeah, it's Columbia River Treaty, and the caps are the capital C, Columbia, the capital R, River, capital T, Treaty, at state.gov. No spaces. And the lead negotiator is Jill Smale. You can say, hi, Jill. <laughs> yes? Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, he's in. We better go with him first. Sorry. Um, I uh, noticed on one of your slides that portions of the river were marked as flowing naturally. Oh, yeah. Should we go back there? <clears throat> I was just curious mm -hmm. how much of the river is actually the flow has been changed by dams and what, what percentage is left as flowing naturally? That's a really good question. 10% uh, of the river is natural. And you could argue that that natural, there, it's really all that means is it's in the tail race of the dam. The tail race is what comes out of the behind, from behind the dam. So there's three sections, one from the headwaters to Golden British Columbia, one from uh, Castlegar British Columbia to Trail British Columbia or to the international boundary, and one in the, um, let's see, Hanford Reach, right? So it goes by the Hanford Nuclear Weapons Station. So that represents about 10% of the entire river. I was going to ask, how effective are fish passage structures on the many dozens of other dams mm -hmm. such that to what extent will the river still be constrained in its salmon production even if we address fish passage on the remaining impassable dams? I mean, how, how far can we really get? That's a really good question. Uh, I think, as I said in my presentation, getting the water moving is our number one goal. Um, they've sunk a tremendous amount of money into salmon restoration on the lower and mid-Columbia because they have to, they being the hydropower producers. They have to do it because salmon is endangered, and we have an Endangered Species Act that legislates that this investment be made. However, fish elevators and the fish ladder systems that they operate, the water warms and the fish are stressed, because they're trying to operate this system within a system where there isn't enough cold water recharging. 
So it's unnatural in that way. There's a new technology the tribes are behind, and I'll give you the initials of this. It's called Woosh, and I highly recommend that you look at their website. The tribes are pressing for a pilot for this Woosh system to go around Grand Coulee Dam. It's W-H-O-O-S-H-H, -H, right? And it's all caps. And the Woosh system is basically a vacuum, what do you call those kind of vacuums they used to put in department stores when they moved? What, what, what is it again? Yeah, that's right. And so it's one of those systems, and it's a very f flexible and wet. And they load, the fish are drawn into the tube by a, natu a current. They create a current that draws them in, and they get in there, and then they go whoosh, whoosh over the top of the dam. Well, they've run one of these at Clealum Dam, and they are very impressed with uh, the fact that the, the fish are arriving at their spawning grounds quicker by a couple of days, and they're fresher and friskier. So they like that ride. They don't like fish elevators, and they don't like warm water. So the problem with the fish ladder system on the, on, that you can see in the gorge is simply that the water has been allowed to warm too much, and that's not necessarily climate change's fault. There's a solution here. Uh, it's me again. Um, uh, my, my, I have sort of a meta question, which actually doesn't relate to fish so much, but I was really struck in the beginning when you were talking about how Canada has to have these dams and they're, and they're, and they're restraining the water so mm -hmm. that places in the States won't be mm -hmm. uh, endangered. And it just immediately just reminded me of the EU and how they're trying to get these countries like Turkey and Greece and Libya and all those countries to like be a sort of a stop to keep, to keep again, movement, right? Something, they're afraid of the circulation of being mm -hmm. overwhelmed by, uh, by a certain tide, mm -hmm. right? And so it just, it just was the same kind of principle, but I guess it's a kind of a meta-analysis, but yep. are, are you thinking metaphysically about circulation and control? Yes, I am, and I'm just gonna go back to that one slide. I mean, this is, this is the challenge of our era. This is not just about dams. Like, what are we gonna do with all this powerful energy that is being unleashed right now? Like, there is powerful energy that that's why we're in the political situation we're in, I believe, in this country. It's because it's like command and control, command and control. We gotta keep a lid on this. And it's not gonna work. So I think it comes down to, um, you're, you're exactly right in your meta-analysis. And I would say, that it, and this is part of, I don't normally talk this way in public presentations, but this is a smoke farm. Uh, this is a move from patriarchal consciousness to matriarchal consciousness. I mean, that's clearly what's going on here. And we have had command and control for several thousand years. Not forever, just for several thousand. And so as the barriers come down, as one of my mentors has described to me, when you hold water back in a dam system, anybody seen the dam porn online of the Elwha River getting blasted open? I highly recommend it. <laughs> and when that happens, there is all kinds of crap that comes into the system because it's been held back behind the dam. Silt, sticks, 
just all kinds of gunk. And when they first released Elwha, it was like chocolate milk, right? It was super thick and muddy. And, you know, one look at it, and there's scientists are standing there going, oh, it's going to be years before the salmon come back. How long did it take? One year or two? Boom, they were back. But in the beginning, it was a mess. So we're in a mess right now. And just the fact that you brought that up with so much awareness means the gig is up. The gig is up. And I just want, because this is part of my baby, this, this whole history, I just want this river to lead the way. I guess that leads into my question, which is there's those falls that are under the water by, I think it's Bonneville Dam. And I'm just curious about what- Salilo. Thank you. What uh, circumstances would be necessary for those falls to reemerge? Well, the dam that is just downstream of those falls has to come out. Would they, I guess would be another question, like is there filth? Well, the river will take care of that. The river will clean it all up. I mean, it, it'll be crazy. There's a, an, a, another kind of print dam porn. It's called The Wave, if you're really into this subject. And it's about a, a, a newspaper reporter imagined that the mica dam, which is 800 feet high and is earth-filled, was going to explode, was not going to hold. And so he wrote this novel called The Wave. I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head. If you need it, I can find it in my system here later. And, and you know, that, the, the description of what happened when that dam gave way, the power of the water, it'll take care of it. But getting that dam out, that's the shifting paradigm. And that's why we need to, to, to really get moving with our renewables. Can you talk a little bit more about the Elwha that they're using? The salmon? Go ahead. About the Elwha? Can you just talk more about the, uh, can you talk more about the Elwha? Yeah. <laughs> Was that what you were gonna say or? Okay, do you mind if I answer that or? Okay. So um, what's happening there is that uh, the fish have, the spawning salmon have returned. Uh, the tribal people are managing and watching it. They've taken a ceremonial fish. They're very pleased with what they've seen. And recently, Marla Mapes, a uh, Seattle Times reporter, did a story, if you Google her name and the Elwha, she's done a series, but a more, a more recent article about the, the riparian restoration. Now, riparian just means streamside, right? And it's astonishing what's happening to the river streamside. Part of it has been encouraged by uh, restorationists and part of it is nature. And to me, it's a beautiful example of how we need to participate. We need to do something. And nature just leaps for joy when we do. And so the riparian is restoring much more quickly than they anticipated. There are fields of lupin that have sprouted up where the reservoir used to be. And the lupin are nitrogen fixers. They're a pea. They're in the pea family and they're fixing nitrogen into the soil to bring back health in the soil. And it's just remarkable. There are other pieces to that Elwha story. And then as the river continues to flow naturally, the salmon will continue to come back, and it will just be a good news story all the way around. 
Um, so the reason why the Elwha was taken out was because the licensing requirements are stiff now because of the e Endangered Species Act and its implications. So when a dam has to relicense, it has to really look at the economics of operation. Is it really worth it for that dam to invest in habitat restoration? And sometimes for these older projects that are medium-sized, it's actually not, there's no economic argument for keeping them. So it wasn't just all touchy-feely when the reason they took out the Awa. It was an economic reason, and that's why I advocate for renewables. Because if we can reduce the value of hydroelectricity low enough, then we've eliminated some of the value of storing that water. So, go ahead. Is there a good example or a good model of good hydroelectric design? Is it much smaller, or are there large projects that are examples, or not really? Um, well, I think some of the really early projects in the early 20th century, right around the time it was first developed, the generators sat at the stream side. And I think those, I would say, qualify as having minimal impact. I've seen some of those original projects in Scotland where they first developed the technology on the Clyde. And they are um, remarkably still operating under the same theory. And I think I would say that for larger projects, they pass. And on a smaller scale, projects that mimic them, that have generators that suspend in the water, and that pay attention to um, impacts around them, uh, are probably a better example. But we certainly aren't seeing much of that on the Columbia. It's the mega project uh, zone for sure with almost no thought given. And the same with the snake. Uh, the snake is more for navigation, valuable for navigation um, than for power, but yeah. The small scale projects, maybe. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the mill is, is a very, very old technology. And it's gentle enough that the ec ecosystem can kind of recover around it. Like it really has to do with thoughtfulness and the level of impact. And these dams were just rammed down the throat of the ecosystem, as well as the people. And that's, that's the big problem. It was just, I feel it when I live there. I feel it all the time. And that's why I speak about it, because I do live there. And almost nobody in this discussion of the Columbia River Treaty actually lives. The power people, they don't live there. So I just keep talking. <laughs> yeah. So it seems, given the climate change, that the water scarcity would become a pretty big deal. So is there any analysis that shows whether freeing up the rivers will make the problem worse or better? because that could be a way to mobilize strong economic arguments for getting rid of the dams. Yeah, well, hmm. it's complicated. Climate change is, is complicated and warming rivers. And I'll just tell you one, give you one anecdote um, that I've, the, sh the tribes have shared with me. They have telemetry on the salmon. Again, applied science. They, they watch the salmon. They tag them and they watch their behaviors. And they've watched the salmon come up through those salmon ladders that are warm, and they breach those dams, and the first thing they do is go straight down on the other side of the dam to the bottom of the water to cool off. 
So they're always looking for the cooler water. Now the question is, how do we find our way with the climate change that is changed to the hydrology, right? It's gonna change, it already has changed the hydrology. And the key is an adaptive system, a flexible system. And I think the negotiators are kind of onto this, but I fear they're thinking only about flood control. I fear they're not thinking about habitat. Uh, but there is some hope for, I believe, for the salmon to um, work within an adaptive system. I just think it's in everyone's mindset now, this water temperature issue. So if we take all the dams out and we just let the water go back, I mean, this is pie in the sky, right? We're not going to do this, but let's say we did. I can't answer you because there's too many variables with climate change. In the old system, prior to 1970, it would have been a dream. But we would have had to evacuate parts of Portland permanently. I think you mentioned that the uh, Columbia River Treaty was coming up for review. Could you explain about that? Like, uh -huh. who, who does the reviewing and how decisions are made and how we could maybe get involved with impacting that? Yeah, great question. So there's only one part of the Columbia River Treaty that has actually stimulated all of these conversations and renegotiation efforts, and that part of the treaty has to do with flood control. So the flood control provision that Canada has provided that flood control to the U.S. for now 50 years, and it will do so until 2024 for a total of 60 years, that flood control provision will, will alter greatly. It will revert to a system where the U.S. has to store its own water for flood control. And it has to call upon Canada only once it has done all the storage it possibly can and proven that all its reservoirs are up to here, then it can go to Canada and say, can you help? And that's called called upon. What we have right now is assured. So what's driving the renegotiation process is the flood control, no question about it, and it was writ large in that Portland meeting. So right now there have been two international formal negotiation meetings. A third will take place in October, October 17 and 18 in Portland. The State Department Columbia River Treaty .state.gov site, if you go to it, will tell you more about what's going on and that email is a way that you can begin your interaction with this topic. Um, you can also obviously read the news and it's gonna be more and more in the news and there will be more town hall meetings in the US. I'm not sure when the next town hall meeting will be, but you can even just email the State Department and ask them, when is the next town hall meeting for the Columbia River Treaty? And the negotiators say that they are at the table with a regional recommendation that, they cre that was created based on consultation widely throughout the Columbia Basin in the United States. Um, and that was a regional recommendation, I believe it was 2013. So if you were to type in regional recommendation 2013 Columbia River Treaty, that would also give you access to what 
the people of the Pacific Northwest wanted. Now, it wasn't just people like you and me. It was also people who are heavily invested in hydropower or irrigation supply. So it was a widespread set of recommendations. On that recommendation was to restore some of the Columbia's ecosystem. It was very broad and vague, but it was there. Does that help? So uh, I, I just would like to uh, thank you for starting us off today. It's a great talk, Eileen. <laughs>